So about the same time, Daniel realizes that the 70 years of exile Jeremiah had prophesied, he realizes those that 70 years is like coming to an end. He's, he's counted it up. It's, it's almost 70 years. Well, right when he prays that prayer to, uh, you know, of repentance and, and talks to God about the end of the 70 years, King Cyrus, his boss, King of Persia, makes a shocking proclamation. It's recorded in the beginning of the book of Ezra. Cyrus decrees, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me rule over all kingdoms on earth and has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem. Any of his people may go to Jerusalem to accomplish this. And any of his people who do not go are to help in the effort by giving silver and gold and possessions and animals and other offerings. And King Cyrus has all the gold and silver and other articles Nebuchadnezzar had stolen. King Cyrus has them brought out of his treasury for the exiles to take back with them to Jerusalem. And actually in this passage is an inventory of the larger items. And that's how we know that there was no Ark of the Covenant or lampstands or any of the other important furnishings. Those had been long lost. The articles that are left are mostly gold and silver tableware. And so the exiles return, at least all those who wish to. Now make a, make a note in your mind that a whole lot of the exiles have assimilated into Babylonian and Persian culture and do not return. So now we're kind of split. We've got some folks that just stayed and became Persians, and we've got about 50,000 people, according to Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7, we've got um, about 50,000 who return to Palestine. Well, when they get there, of course, there is no city because Jerusalem was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar way back in 586 BCE. And so there's no place for the, all these people to live. So they scatter and each family goes back to their own hometown area in Judah to, build, to reclaim their land and build homes. So we're going to leave them there to get settled. And we're going to go back and pick up the last few chapters of Daniel, which are doozies. We're another year or two into the reign of King Cyrus by now, sometime around 537 BCE. Daniel has long since retired. He's old, he's nearing death, but he has one last encounter with an angel. Daniel has been fasting and praying for three weeks, and he's gone for a walk by the Tigris River with some other folks. When suddenly a brilliantly shining man appears before him, this this picture doesn't quite do the angel justice. The angel has a face like lightning, eyes like fire, his limbs shine brightly, and his voice is the sound of a great tumult. This is one of the clearest descriptions of what an angel looks like spiritually that we have in scripture. The other folks who are with Daniel don't see the angel. He's not in a physical bodily form, but they sense his presence and run away in terror. Daniel himself faints. Then the angel touches him and says, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Stand up and listen to me. 
God heard you the very first day of your fast and sent me immediately. But the prince of Persia stood against me for 21 days until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. That is such an interesting statement. The shining man, who is an angel himself, is talking about other angels, not physical earthly princes. Remember that Daniel is in Babylon, which is part of the Persian Empire, and that word for prince used here to describe these angels is Sar, not Nasi. Sar is a more military term, meaning something like commander, while Nasi is the royal term for ruler or prince. That makes a difference here, right? These angels are called Sar. We have already had an understanding from the Hebrew Bible that God's angels are part of the heavenly hosts. They have shown up to fight battles quite frequently, and we've even had the commander of the Lord's army show up back in Joshua, and we wondered then if that might be Jesus commanding all the heavenly hosts. And here we are seeing for the first time an understanding that there is a further hierarchy of command. Not only is there a commander of the Lord's armies, but there seem to be um, regional responsibilities under the command of particular angels. This so-called prince of Persia is more like a captain in the heavenly hosts. And Michael would be something along the lines of a general, as we would understand that term. We typically call Michael an archangel based on this passage. But the term is in use more clearly represents a general in the Lord's armies. What is also interesting is that the captain of Persia is actively resisting God's will. This is the first glimpse we have of actual heavenly battles that correspond to struggles here on earth. Lots of people dismiss all of this as cultural wrapping paper. And it definitely does smack of cultural overlays. I mean, the Persians had a much more uh, robust idea of, you know, these heavenly beings and things than the Hebrews historically did. On the other hand, we are all personally aware of the struggle between good and evil. It happens within our very souls. It happens on a national level, as we well know. That is a fact. So how should we interpret stuff like this? As for me, I understand the Bible to be teaching us that for everything we see physically, there is a spiritual counterpart. It's just like we physically, humans, have spirits. We, we exist physically, but we have a spiritual counterpart. I see this as a picture of what is going on spiritually here, this whole part of Daniel. It's comforting to know that in our earthly, physical, and emotional struggles, we are not alone. There is a bigger picture. And I don't get into angelology. I don't try to discern the angelic hierarchy or the duties. I won't even talk to you about that. And I certainly would not take this to mean that Persia as a nation is somehow evil. It, that's not what this is about. 
If I needed to know more about the heavenly hosts, God would have revealed more. I simply appreciate these rare glimpses that we get in scripture. You should feel free to interpret these passages in whatever way seems appropriate to you. There are going to be scholars on your side no matter what position you take, and I certainly wouldn't argue with anyone over these points. I'm a lot more interested in what the angel actually ends up telling Daniel, since it's clearly an important message and one the Prince of Persia is trying to prevent getting through. The shining angel tells Daniel to be strong and listen, because he can't stay long. He's got to go back and fight the Prince of Persia some more. He tells Daniel that when he leaves, the Prince of Greece will also come against him, and that only Michael whom he calls your commander, is the only one who supports him in his fight against Persia and Greece. Now we know from history that it will not be long before the Greek empire under Alexander the Great will spread swiftly to take over the entire known world, conquering Persia and overcoming all the lands in which God's people are scattered. So it's super interesting that this angel sees this coming. The shining angel says he's been fighting alongside Michael since the first year of Darius the Mede. And we find out a little later that the archangel Michael has specific responsibility for protecting Israel, protecting God's people. So now we know who the spiritual players are. And we already know the historical political forces in play. So let's see what the angel has to say that is so important. In chapter 11, the angel tells Daniel he has come to explain what will happen to God's people in the future. He says, four kings will arise in Persia, with the last one being the richest one by far. He will be very powerful and will do as he pleases. Historically, the first king that comes along is Cambyses II, who is the son of Cyrus the Great. He conquers Egypt in the Battle of Pelusium, which probably fulfills a number of the prophecies we've heard about the subjugation and destruction of Egypt. But it definitely does not fill them all. Egypt will survive this defeat and after a time will become a major player again. According to one version of the story, Cambyses II kills his brother Smerdis and sets up one of his loyal magi named Guamata as his designated successor. So some historians call this next king Pseudo-Smerdis. At any rate, Cambyses dies shortly thereafter, and this Smerdis assumes the throne. He only lasts a few months, as you can imagine, under the circumstances. The next king is Darius the Great. Some historians think he may have invented the whole story about Pseudo-Smerdis being an imposter. So we honestly don't know the true story here. At any rate, don't confuse Darius the Great here with Darius the Mede, whom Daniel knew. Darius the Great doesn't come along until long after Daniel's death. Daniel is very old when the shining angel comes with these messages. 
and Daniel presumably dies very soon afterwards, sometime during the reign of Cyrus the Great and before any of these kings arise. The fourth king is Xerxes, also known in the Bible as Akash Verosh. He, he's the king who marries Esther, so we'll get to him as well. He is a harsh king, and rebellions sprout up everywhere during his reign. He rules the Persian Empire at its greatest geographical spread, trying to gather tribute from as far away as Ethiopia and India. But then he makes a fatal error. He tries to conquer Greece in 480 BCE, but the Greeks are able to beat him back, and that is the beginning of the end of the Persian Empire. The angel tells Daniel, the kingdom of the fourth and most powerful king will be broken up and scattered. It will not go to his descendants. And eventually that is what happens. Several more of Xerxes' descendants rule for the next 150 years or so, but it is a period of constant war with Greece and with Egypt. And it is during this 150 years that Greece comes into its own. This is the time of Hippocrates, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. And in 330 BCE, Alexander the Great of Greece conquers Persia decisively. His empire spreads through the world very, very swiftly. But Alexander dies suddenly in Babylon, of all places, while making his way home from a military campaign in India. He's only 33 years old and has no clear successor. Next, the angel tells Daniel, the king of the south will rise to power again. Well, that is quite clearly Egypt. And the angel says, one of this king's commanders will become stronger and will break away. And here's how it happens historically. As Alexander's body is carried back towards Macedonia, the funeral procession is attacked by Ptolemy of Egypt, who captures Alexander's sarcophagus and carries it back to Egypt, where he builds a great tomb for it. Well, this is a big power play, as whoever has Alexander's body is laying claim to his throne as well. But the intrigue doesn't stop there. During these years of political and military jostling, one of Alexander's generals, Seleucus, establishes himself as king of Babylon. But he's driven out of Babylon by a rival, and he flees to Egypt, where he becomes a general under Ptolemy. That doesn't last long, of course. Ptolemy and Seleucus end up fighting each other, in particular over Palestine. Seleucus wins that contest, grabs Palestine, and sets him up, himself up this time as king over Syria. He amasses great power and eventually becomes stronger than Ptolemy. So I'm going to scroll down on this chart to make some room for the next bits, so don't let the visual confuse you here. The angel says that after a while, these two kings will become allies. So we need to look at a map to understand how it happens that Ptolemy and Seleucus become allies again. What happens first is that Ptolemy, down there in Egypt, 
decides his younger son will inherit the throne. The older son, Caranus, does not like that. So he leaves and goes to the court of another one of Alexander's former generals. This one's named Lysimachus, who had set himself up as king of Thrace and Asia Minor. Caranus figures he can overthrow Lysimachus and take Thrace from him. But turns out he's not quite powerful enough to do it on his own, so he enlists the help of Seleucus. And that's how the Ptolemy kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom become allies again. It doesn't last long. When Caranus wins his bid for Thrace, he turns around and assassinates Seleucus, his ally, who helped him conquer Lysimachus. Sheesh. Let's take another look at the map. The thing to realize here is that for the time being, the Ptolemies of Egypt now have the upper hand in Thrace and Asia Minor, which are part of Egypt now. Just look at the geography there. Next, the angel tells Daniel, the daughter of the king of the south, that would be Egypt, will try to make an alliance with the king of the north, that would be the Seleucids. And that happens. Berenice of Egypt is forced onto the Seleucid king in a political marriage. He has to divorce his beloved wife, Laodice, in order to marry Berenice of Egypt. Then the angel says the daughter of the king of the south, that would be Berenice, will be betrayed and the king of the north, the Seleucid king, will lose power. Let's look at a map to see how this plays out. By this point, there is ongoing fighting between the Ptolemy dynasty of Egypt and the Seleucid dynasty, which is the king of the north in all these prophecies. The fighting is most fierce over who will control Palestine the bottleneck of an immensely valuable trade route running north and south and bordering on the Mediterranean Sea. You can see that it's vital to the Egyptians because with Palestine, they can connect the two halves of their far-flung empire and at the same time, restrict Seleucid access to the Mediterranean. The current Ptolemy in Egypt eventually gains the upper hand, and as I explained, he insists that the Seleucid king divorce his beloved wife, Laodice, and marry his daughter, Berenice, who is of royal lineage from both Thrace and uh, Egypt proper. The Seleucid king capitulates, but as soon as Ptolemy dies, he takes back his wife, Laodice. Uh, not a good move. Laodice has never forgiven her husband for divorcing her in the first place, and she murders him and Berenice and Berenice's baby son and puts her own son on the Seleucid throne. Yikes, right? The angel says the king of the south, that would be Egypt, will be betrayed and that someone from Berenice's line will take the southern throne. Now, I don't think we know what the specific historical betrayal is that is referred to here, but we do know that Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III Euergetes, does come to the Egyptian throne. He attacks the Seleucids and captures their capital city of Antioch. 
The angel says that some years will then pass, and then the king of the north will invade the south. His sons will be like a flood and will get as far as the fortress of the king of the south, but then they will retreat. This happens in 220 BCE, when Antiochus the Great, a Seleucid king from the north, declares war on Egypt and gets as far as Gaza. But the king of the south, the angel says, will march out in a rage and will defeat the king of the north, slaughtering thousands, and he will be filled with pride. And sure enough, in 217 BCE, Ptolemy of Egypt defeats Antiochus the Great of the north. But Ptolemy does not press his advantage. He just goes back home, and that is a big tactical error. The angel tells Daniel that the king of the north will raise an even larger army and will attack again, this time with the help, quote, of those among your own people who are violent and who rebel against this vision. Well, that happens after Ptolemy IV dies and his infant son comes to the throne. Antiochus the Great sees a perfect opportunity with a baby on the Egyptian throne, and he allies with Philip of Macedonia, and with the help of some Judeans of Palestine, they attack Ptolemy V. The alliance, however, is defeated by the Egyptians. But then the angel says the king of the north will build siege ramps and capture a fortified city and will do as he pleases. And the troops from the south will be unable to stop him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have power over it. We've run across that phrase, beautiful land, before. It refers to the promised land, to Palestine. The king of the south is able to keep the king of the north from invading Egypt itself, but he loses Palestine. And historically, that's exactly what happens. Even though his coalition was prevented from taking Egypt, Antiochus the Great wrests permanent control of Palestine from Egypt. At this point, the angel says the king of the north will try to make a marriage alliance with the king of the south with the intent to use that as a way to weaken and overthrow the south. But his plan won't work, and he will turn his attention to the coastlands. And sure enough, in history, Antiochus the Great gives his daughter to Ptolemy V in marriage then begins fighting the Romans for control of the Mediterranean coastline. This is around 194 BCE. Notice that the Romans are beginning to show up as a world power. But, the angel says, a commander will put a stop to the taunting of the king of the north and will turn it back on him, and he will stumble and fall on the way back to his own country. Well, as it turns out, Antiochus the Great is soundly defeated by the Romans. He turns for home, but is killed while trying to loot a temple in Persia. Then the angel says, his successor will have to raise money by imposing taxes, and in a few years will himself be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. All right, well, 
Historically, this successor is Seleucus IV Philopater. He does have to raise taxes to pay the terribly heavy tribute that Rome imposes. And he does not die in battle. He is eventually poisoned. The angel says this king will be succeeded by someone who will not be given the honor of royalty, but who is utterly contemptible. Now, this guy is important. Um, this is this is a really big deal here. So we need to um, back up just a little bit uh, because this is easier to follow if we look at Seleucus the Fourth family tree. Remember that Seleucus's father Antiochus the Great was defeated by Rome. Rome has been holding his younger son Antiochus the Fourth hostage for the last fourteen years. When Antiochus the Great dies, Seleucus ascends to the throne in Syria. He's got a son named Demetrius. Demetrius is therefore taken as hostage by Rome, and Antiochus the Fourth is freed. That makes sense, right? Once released, Antiochus the Fourth doesn't go home, but instead goes to live in Athens. Seleucus has another son, also named Antiochus. I know it's confusing, but their capital city is Antioch, so Antiochus is a common name for their rulers. And shortly after the birth of this son, Seleucus IV dies, leaving a power gap. A man named Heliodorus declares himself regent. Well, Antiochus IV is not going for that. He returns home boots Heliodorus and declares himself co-regent with his baby nephew Antiochus. That, of course, doesn't last long. Antiochus IV eventually murders his nephew. So he can have the throne entirely to himself. And he names himself Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We'll be seeing a lot of him, but for now, let's stop and give some thought to what we've just heard. We've heard a lot of detail in these prophecies, like a lot, so much that you might begin to wonder if Daniel's prophecies have been reworked in hindsight by whomever wrote this material down. We'll think about this in our breakout groups. And um, so pull out your uh, sheet of questions Uh, And note that in question two, I give you like three historical facts. uh, And and I'd kind of like you to scroll at the bottom. A last kind of ultimate question. The question is, does it matter? You know, I don't want you to get bogged down and lost in the historical details. What, What we're trying to look at is, do we think? What do we think of Daniel's prophecies? Um, What do we think of their historicity? What do we think about the the things that um, Jesus and others say will happen in the future? And, And the bottom line is, how does that make a difference to us? Or does it? Well, hey, everybody, turn your mics back on. I'm interested to know what what you all thought of this. Um, it, it's kind of kind of interesting question. So question one was basically just on the face of it, overall, 
what do we think about is Daniel a prophet or is Daniel not a prophet? Is this prophecy or is this not prophecy? What 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 are the pros and cons there? What do you come up with? Well, that's going to depend on how you define prophecy. Okay. Because I believe he's a prophet, but we were discussing how we also think it probably was written after the fact. And what did the other group did the other group think the same thing? Yeah, we, I think we did pretty much, didn't we, Marlene, that it was probably written afterwards? Yeah, it, it, um, it seems too specific where we don't see that high level of specificity over such a long period of time in other prophecies. And Yay! it seemed like, and it seemed like <laughs> the prophets, you know, identified as the books of the prophets were really more about what was happening in Israel and Judah and God calling his people back to him, where this is all about the politics of the region, right. which is very different. We from... also, I'm sorry. No, no, uh, go ahead. Okay. We also pointed out, uh, figured out that Daniel was, even in the earlier prophecies that were in Daniel, he was more wordy. He was more poetic and in this this chapter this he was not as wordy so it just didn't seem like it was his writings it did feel it sounds very different from everything else doesn't it mm-hmm. i mean we you could get like lost po- in there we also said it's possible that some of it he actually wrote but then embellished after the fact, and they said, oh, this goes with this, and started kind of adding things, and um, so that, you know, it's possible it was a little bit of both. It's possible that some of it was him, but then upon um, looking back on it and saying, oh, we need to make sure that, what was it, Julie said, we need to make sure this history is recorded, so let's just throw it in here. Sort of you know, it, me, it cracks me up that you say that you say that partly just because because you know in seminary when you go to seminary the the seminarians all tell each other they if they ask you a question the answer is always Jesus and and, uh, <laughs> and 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 I would add if you're talking about the Bible the answer is always both and <laughs> love it. Well, you know, it reminded me, I know we're not in the New Testament yet, but it reminded me of some of the references in the Gospels, where I think, especially in Matthew, where he keeps saying, Jesus did this, or this happened to fulfill the prophecy X, Y, or Z. And it's that that looking back and trying to line up things with things that had been foretold, you know, maybe not specific prophecies in in the prophetic, the, the traditional prophetic sense with what's going on here in Daniel 11. But this idea of we need to show that this was true by seeing things that happened that we can line up with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, we that you're basically that. you're saying that, that the guy here, whoever pseudo Daniel is, the guy who is using Daniel's name to write this down, was doing pretty much what Matthew was doing, just in a different, rather than proving Jesus, mm-hmm. he was just trying to prove Daniel. 
he was trying to prove Daniel's authenticity. Yeah. Well, and, and the chronology is just too neat. You know? Yeah. It's too neat. Yeah, and I love that you all now have enough of a foundation. You have a huge foundation in the prophets as a whole to read this chapter and say, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound like that doesn't sound like the prophets and to identify the theme that the theme is different. You know, that's that's kind of a big deal. I just want y'all to get a, like a certificate or something for that. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting. It's so interesting that you would talk about the the uh, uh, that the answer being you're always being the answer is Jesus because I, I had a thought last week some something that somebody said Barb or somebody me think that really my entire then this is just so forgive me my entire reading or I read all of the old all of the Hebrew Bible through the lens or filter of the New Testament right. Yeah. We do ourselves a disservice when we do that, don't we? Yep. Mm. Yeah. So it's been hard to get out of that for me to to realize that you know, oh, I can question something. Yeah. Or, well, that's like one of the things we talked about in question two was I went out on a limb when we were talking about the rebuilding of the temple and okay, going out on a limb again, as Christian, aren't we the temple? Don't we have God within us, Jesus within us? So what are we waiting to be built? But somebody pointed out that our Judeo roots, they're still waiting on the temple. Yes. Yes. And there, so there again, is. A, it was, it was, I'm sorry. No, you here go again, ahead, Woody. Here, here again, it was Jesus that basically taught that we are the temple, that God is in yes. us. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> but I don't, and I don't think that he was saying that these prophecies will never come true, that these prophecies about a future temple, like the one Ezekiel saw, that, you know, will never come true. I think Jesus was trying to get them to understand that it's not about the temple. It's about us and God. It's about us and God. It's about God dwelling with us, in us, in through us. us, around us, God with us. That's why Jesus was named Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> it's, it's not a building, it's a relationship. Yes, and mm -hmm. certainly the uh, you know these temples that are prophesied could indeed happen. Who knows? You know, but but that's not the point of God's speaking through those prophets, right? Mm. So, what else did you think? So, what is the point of God speaking through those prophets? Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, but putting ourselves back into the context of Jews looking for the Messiah. What was God 
saying here. Exactly. What or do you think? just even if this is not about the Messiah, what was God saying here? What was the point away? of these prophecies? They have to have a point, right? For the people yeah, that right. they're given to. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I, that, that brought a thought to me, Martha. Um, these, you know, a lot of you know, the prophets are, are constantly trying to reach out to the people who are chasing their gods and saying, you need to come back to God. God is saying, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. Um, or you're going to experience basically the fruits of your labors, which is going to be destruction. But then in the talk about the temple being destroyed and being rebuilt, um, even Jesus used that language about this temple will be destroyed and then will be raised again in three days, um, sort of equating himself with the temple. And if you look at that language and then you look at um, the prophecies of a temple that will never be destroyed, Mm. I mean, a physical building is not going to exist forever. Neither are these bodies. Neither did Jesus. Yeah, but the Emmanuel, the the God with us temple cannot be destroyed. Right. Yeah. Now, I still don't understand the prophecy. Yeah, I just don't understand the prophecies about, about, you know, the abomination, you know, that causes desolation and the sacrificing pigs on the altar and that sort of thing. Um, I can't imagine that sacrifices would actually be reinstituted in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that seems like maybe that was a, a cultural and historical context for the people in a time when that was happening. There is no answer, right? Uh, Anybody that gives you an answer, (laughs) you know, you're going to have to tell them that they just chose it's, it's multiple choice, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And, and also I think that it's multiple choice and all the answers are correct. (laughs) It could be because I think that these, (laughs) these, um, the outcome of these prophecies, I think the prophecies very often are spiritual pictures, you know, because, and that's why we have prophecy and interpretation, two different things, okay? And what's happened in chapter 11 is probably Daniel wrote a prophecy and somebody else came along and put the interpretation right on it, you know, um, mm-hmm. because the interpretation is how it works out physically. The spiritual reality is still a spiritual reality. But it could work out any number of ways, depending on people's choices. Yes. Yeah. So here's a question for you. Um, You were talking at the beginning of the lesson about the word for the uh, prince, spiritual entity, the prince of Persia um, versus another Hebrew word. Um, when the awesome. prophecy was written down about the king of the north and the king of the south, back and forth and back and forth, what word was used? Was me, it a human ruler or was it the spiritual ruler? Let me look that up real quick. Um, so the king here, I just got a message that my um, internet is unstable. They are using the word melech which is just a a king as opposed to 
um, the Nazi, which is used as the word for prince. So they have several words. Okay. So there is a third okay. word called Melech, which is a very, very, very common word. Um, okay. in the Bible. So it's more a human, it, a human Definitely. reference. Definitely. Um, the, the SAR means it's, it's like being a head of, it's a commander. It's a military, more of a military term. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll close off that rabbit trail. I'm going to go down there. Okay. <laughs> I love the rabbit trails. You know, it's I, what I, what I really want um, is, is you to know that I'm, I'm, I'm showing you the behind the scenes of the Bible. And, um, and that when I first ever even heard of pseudo Daniel, it rocked my world, you know, and, and, and I don't want that to be the case for you. Uh, that, 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 that thing, that particular thing really shook me um, when I came across it. And I don't want the fact or the truth of God for you to be dependent on an interpretation or a speculation, but only on the big important themes. Not the detail, but the bird's eye view. I want you to be able to look at the themes in the Bible and see them all the way through. The ones you see all the way through, that's the important stuff. That will not ever change. That will not change you, from the Old you, Testament. You instilled that in us. <laughs> you did. Because oh. I can see where I would be like, wait a minute, what? Um, <laughs> saying that this wasn't part of Daniel's actual prophecy. But we have learned and gleaned and grown from the things you have taught us up to this point to where we can look at that and think about it critically and not um, go, oh, I'm a Christian. I can't be thinking this way because <laughs> that's what I would have done a year ago. I mean, that's what I've been doing for the past, what is it now? 10 years I've been deconstructing and reconstructing. Um, there's been so much guilt because as I, I love how Julia says, I'm going to talk outside the box right now. I had so much guilt about going outside that box because for, for I'm 62 years old for at least 52, 53 of those years, I was in that box and you don't dare go outside that box because then you're a heretic. Mm -hmm. And it has been such a relief to know you can question God welcomes questions because he wants to provide answers and that if we look at our questions through his eyes, we can get so much better answers than what we've been getting looking at our questions through tradition's eyes. Yeah. And so I don't want to, I want exactly. To, it, it's I like, want I don't want to, you. oh, mm-hmm. of course, that's what this is all about. But, but, but <laughs> I don't want to, um, I, I, it is so important that we not throw the baby out with the bathwater because people who are, you know, who do reconstruct, who run up against a truth that is different than what they've been taught is in the Bible, but they know it, they know it's truth, you know, what they know. 
and something has to go, they throw the whole thing out. You know, they, they will throw the Bible out. They'll throw their faith community out. They will throw everything out. And this kind looking at this deeply and facing these hard questions and looking at the stuff that is confusing is a way of strengthening us so that we know, oh, I can see what's going on here. I can, I can understand. I see people meddling with this stuff. It's pretty obvious, you know? Um, so it's, it's very, it's so important. And when, and the reason that I wrote these questions for you in the study guide, like I did, is because when Antiochus, uh, the fourth epiphanies, um, just kind of during his part in history, like right near the end of his life, is where is the historical point at which whoever was writing Daniel's stuff down, apparently did the writing. Because there are parts of the prophecy in the rest of chapter 11 and, and tw- that we are going to look at next week that don't line up with immediate history. It's like you have one, one, A, one, B, let's see, two, one, A, two, A, two, B, two, C, all the way halfway through chapter 11. And all of a sudden it doesn't match anymore, you know, and you can like draw the line with the date. You can see where it is. So it's important, I think, as you read this stuff for next week, that you think about, oh, I wonder if this part of Daniel is more like what his original prophecy was, you know, that maybe this is that substrata that the pseudo Daniel came in and kind of fixed up all the, you know, the early part, you know what I mean? Um, So think about that as you read this week. And um, Dale, I was going to say, there is a place for tradition. We are having corned beef, cabbage, and potatoes tonight. (laughs) 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 And there is a place for tradition, and this should be very freeing. This, this, all of this, you, you are becoming really good. Um, trekkers on the journey at this point and and very experienced and able to recognize things and uh i there is an old um and true saying that often people go to seminary and lose their faith because they learn these things but they don't spend the time like we're doing to really learn all of them. What would happen is somebody coming out of like your background, Shirley, would be presented with pseudo Daniel and their world would be shook and there would be nothing else for them to hold on to. And, and, um, and that does happen frequently that people go to seminary and lose their faith because they're taught the scholarly stuff without context also. So um, to the extent that you can when you're talking with people or you're in bible studies you are now equipped to speak words of gentleness and truth and context to people you know um so that so that their faith isn't shaken there's no reason for that so anyway we didn't answer the does it matter question oh we didn't we said it we said it didn't (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I, I think I think our general feeling was that 
it doesn't either because we don't know. That's right. <laughs> There's no way to determine whether it's door A, door B, or door C, right? And, what and it could be both and. What, <laughs> Julia? And, and even if, if it happens, what are we going to do to stop it? I mean, this is spiritual high chess. Yeah. We are merely pawns in the in this one. That's right. That's right. We're we we have a place to stand, but it's not at this level. <laughs> you know yeah. that 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 Daniel's talking about. So, ah, oh, yay! Thank you, Shirley, for bringing that up. I love you all. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Bye.